You might have noticed that we're spending a fair bit of time in the first chapter of Colossians, and um, we're going to spend about half the entire series just in Colossians chapter 1, and then we're going to speed up a little bit. The reason why that's happening is because Colossians 1, of the four chapters in this book, really lay an important foundation for everything that Paul's going to talk about from here. So it's good for us to really start to wrap our head a little and our hearts a little around the implications of that this is all about Jesus, what he has done, who he is for us and what he has done for us. And out of that is going to flow a whole series of implications that Paul's going to take us through. So let's finish off this chapter. Read with me from Colossians chapter 1, starting from verse 24, just down to the bottom of the chapter. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. It says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works Within me. That's God's word. I think if you've been tracking along with us, you will you will see that these verses start to shift a little bit from where Paul has been so far. I mean, up until now, Paul has very much had his thoughts and all of his language. I mean, they've all been pointed squarely towards Jesus, right? Particularly, we've just come out of a a long sort of series of passages which start to deal with who Jesus is and how supreme he is and how he's over all things. And now these verses are starting to shift attention a little bit. Um, Paul has, has started with a very emphatic sort of statement that that Christ is supreme over everything. And this is all about Jesus. That's what this book's about. But it's good to know that Paul isn't some sort of um, pie in the sky. I don't even know where that, that phrase comes from. You heard that phrase before? Pie in the sky. I, mean, I, I don't know. It's not where pies come from, but I don't know where the saying comes from. But he, he's not a pie in the sky sort of theologian, all right? I mean, Paul has, Paul has skin in the game. He, he's got... Blood and sweat and tears invested in this. And so while he's just been talking all about who Jesus is and what he's done and his supremacy and his created order, he's been talking all about that. But Paul isn't some sort of theologian that just sits in an office somewhere, doesn't have 
an understanding of what it means to live that out in real life, Paul knows that the Colossian church, they're under the pump. I mean, Paul knows that things are tough for them. Paul knows that they are confused about some things. Paul knows that they will face persecution for their faith. Paul knows that it isn't just about tough circumstances. We're going to see in this book that Paul understands that there is a spiritual war occurring all around the Colossian church, all around any church that loves and follows Jesus. And so Paul wants to comfort his friends. Paul wants to give them confidence. And he does that by rooting their confidence in the only place that he knows of. And that's in Jesus himself. And so we're seeing a sudden shift away from this is who Jesus is to now this is why you can have confidence in him. And that shift is starting to happen as we close off chapter 1. And the way that Paul starts to do that is to start to bring his own story and his own ministry into the picture a little bit. Up until now, it's just been all about this is who Jesus is, right? And now he's saying, hey, listen, um, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. So what we're going to do is really then sort of um, look at a few reasons why Paul is confident in the sufficiency of Christ. And then that means why the Colossian church, why we can also be confident in the finished work of the gospel. But there's a problem that I want to address first, and it's, it's found in that first opening sentence, okay? Um, because it could trick you up a little bit. It could distract you from what Paul's wanting to say. So there's a problem to resolve first, and it's the statement which says that he is, Paul says, I'm filling up in my flesh what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. So the problem there is, is asking the question, Paul has just been saying how sufficient Jesus is, how awesome he is, how great he is, how supreme he is, there's something lacking, and, and I've got to now fill in the gaps. So there's a problem that we need to resolve first before we start to move forward. Jesus' suffering, this is, this is where I'm going to start on it, and then I want to try and address why I think this. Jesus' suffering for us is completely sufficient. Right? Jesus' suffering for us is completely sufficient. Even as Jesus dies and breathes his last words, he is able to look out on all of his people as he, as he watches them. Not those that were just there, but those throughout all of history, past and present, and say, it is finished. It's done. I've drained the, I've drained the very last drop, the wrath of God. Everything that Jesus had to go through for our sake, he went through and it was done and it was completed. It is completely sufficient. The finished work of Christ is everything you need for salvation. Nothing more is required. 
So the problem comes when we find a verse in the Bible like this, where Paul says, hey, listen, um, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We might start to think, well, hang on. That sort of sounds like that that, that Jesus didn't do enough, that his afflictions weren't enough, and that Paul had to sort of do something more for it. So here's an important principle when you're trying to interpret verses out of the Bible which seem a little bit confusing. And they deal with an idea that seems a bit sort of like, well, hang on, I I don't quite understand that. Always interpret what's a little bit difficult by what's clear. So so go elsewhere in the Bible and start to do a study on... um, the work of Christ in salvation. So the death of Christ in salvation, is it sufficient? Now, everywhere right throughout the Bible deals with the sufficiency of Jesus' death for your salvation. It makes it clear that what he has done is enough. In fact, the same writer, Paul, as he writes to other churches, he's saying, hey, don't add anything to what Jesus has done for you. That's not the gospel. And so in Paul's mind, we can see elsewhere that he understands very clearly that the The cross of Christ is sufficient. It's enough. So what does he mean when he says that in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Something else is in Paul's mind. Not your salvation. Not something that you can trust in for your rescue. There's something else about the afflictions of Christ that Paul says there's something else that's lacking and that somehow I've... I'm able to do that. Paul has in mind some other purpose for suffering. I think something that Jesus does for us in his suffering, but something that Paul can do for us in his suffering as well. I want you to leave your finger um, in Colossians. Actually, before you flick out of it, I want you to jump forward. We'll do like a little teaser for the next message. Just read chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to go and look at 2 Corinthians. So if you, you need to get a head start on finding that. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. We can see that where Paul's going with what he's talking about in chapter 1 is he's moving towards wanting to say something to actually encourage, something to build up these people that have never met him face to face. And he wants their courage, their encouragement to be rooted in what God has done for them. He says, I want them to have full assurance, right? And understanding of the knowledge of who God is. This full assurance is in the finished work of Christ. And he's got a struggle, he says. How great a struggle I have for you. In the verses that we read in verse 24 of chapter 1, he's saying, I'm filling up my afflictions, Paul's heart is concerned for these people. All right, let's have a look. Uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, read to you from verse 3. 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 3. 
Now, remember, Paul's talking about affliction, Paul's talking about discomfort, and he's talking about what it might do for us. Paul's saying, I'm filling up in my flesh the afflictions of Christ. All right? All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. So keep that in mind. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, there's that word again, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we, which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort also. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. I believe that what Paul's talking about back in Colossians is that was the part of the suffering which brings comfort. It's strange to think about suffering bringing comfort, but it's true, isn't it? Let's say that... um, Let's say that I'm diagnosed with a terrible sickness and I go through some great discomfort and tragedy in it. Let's say six months into my journey of battling this disease, I meet up with somebody else who has the same sickness, who's been through the same challenges. Have you ever had an experience, something like that? Maybe it's not a great sickness. Maybe it's just been a, a terrible experience that you've had. That really rocked you. And then you meet somebody else who's been through the same type of experience. What's it like when you meet them and and you can share and talk about your experiences a bit? Now, it seems bizarre, but it actually brings some sort of comfort. I've, I've said it myself where I've thought, this person understands what I'm going through. This person knows what it's like. Their suffering and their affliction is a comfort to me. And that's not a perverse thing. It's not like I sit there and just think, I'm so glad that they're suffering. No one thinks that. But there is something comforting about knowing that you're walking through a valley that somebody else has walked through. And that they're able to walk with you and say, I know what it's like. Keep going. Come on. And your, your suffering encourages them. I think what Paul's talking about here, in verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my suffering. I rejoice in it. And he actually tells us, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of who? For the sake of the body. Paul knows that his sufferings, his challenges, his great afflictions... In the similar way to what Jesus' afflictions and suffering do, can bring comfort to the church, can bring confidence to the church and to us. So Paul's suffering wasn't for our salvation, but it was for our comfort. 
Because here's the truth. I can't suffer for your salvation. I can't. There's only one person that could ever suffer for your salvation, and that was Jesus Christ himself, the perfect one. Nobody else has what it takes to take the wrath of God and the suffering of sin and pay the price of it for anybody else's life unless they are the perfect one, spotless, without blemish, the Bible says, and that is only Jesus. I can't suffer for your salvation, but I can suffer for your comfort. I can suffer for your comfort. And you can suffer for somebody else's comfort. So Paul's great concern as he's leading out of the supremacy of Jesus is that this isn't just some sort of theological truth that people are able to meet each other on church on you know, Sunday morning in Colossae, have a cup of tea or something, and say, you know what? Jesus is supreme. Oh, that's wonderful. Isn't it good? Do you know that he created everything? Yeah, I know that. That's good. This is not just some abstract theological truth that's sort of just left sitting in a textbook somewhere. Paul's saying these truths make a difference in real life. Even when you're suffering. Even when you're afflicted. Even when you're grieving. The only hope that we have is to cling to the supreme one. The great one who's over all things. So, so here's the logic of Paul's comfort. This is what Paul's wanting to do. He's wanting to comfort the Colossians. He's wanting to comfort those that will read this letter we know from chapter 2 in also Laodicea. He wants to comfort us as we read this same letter thousands of years later. Here's the logic of, of his comfort. And we're going to just follow through these few verses and make a couple of points as we go. So start in verse 24 where we've already been. I think Paul rejoices in his suffering because he knows that just as Christ's suffering does, it will bring comfort to others who suffer. Because the, the, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ and who he is and, and how supreme he is and, and how over everything he is, that gospel turns suffering from a self-centered experience to an others-centered experience. Because that's what suffering will tend to do to us, right? Suffering, if we, if we walk through a hard road, if we walk through difficult circumstances, maybe relational experiences, maybe sickness, if we walk through that, the, the flesh, the, that part of us, that very human part of us, will tend to take suffering and turn inward. Where this suffering becomes about me. This suffering can produce bitterness. Where I think, why is this happening to me? This is all about me. And suffering will do that. Suffering will start to cloud out our vision of other people. And other people's needs. And it all becomes about my needs and my experience and my pain. And what Paul is saying is, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. The gospel turns suffering from a self-centered experience to an others-centered experience. Because Paul looks to the cross and he says, there's the one who suffered the most and he suffered for you. And now he's saying, I have the same experience and I have the same opportunity and so do you. 
That as I suffer, I can see that my suffering is not just about me, but my suffering is actually about saying, how can my suffering bring comfort and serve you? That's a whole new way of thinking about our suffering, right? That's the first part of the logic of Paul's comfort for the Colossians and for us. Second is this. We can see that Paul had a mission. Paul had a mission. You can see it in verse 25. Paul says this church, he's been talking about this church that he wants to see comforted. Verse 25, this church is the church that I became to muster according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. That's his mission, right? He says this word of God, which is a mystery in verse 26, Hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul has a mission. His mission is to make the word of God fully known. Because in that word is a revelation of an ancient mystery. For, For generations, he says, and for ages, it has been a mystery. How can we live at peace with God? I mean, that, that's the crux of this great mystery. All the Gentile nations of the world had in sense um, lived in some sort of tension of trying to figure out how do we live at peace with the, the world that we live in? And so they came up with all sorts of systems of worship or animism or sacrifice or whatever it might have been. But amongst God's chosen special people, the Israelites, who he revealed himself to even in the Old Testament, it was still a mystery. I mean, it was. Have you read through Leviticus lately? It's mysterious. Right? You start getting all these details about what color thread had to be in the curtain and how long this was and how high that was. And I mean, it is so detailed as you start to see the institution of the sacrifices and what sacrifice was for this and for that. And if you've got mold on the wall, knock your house down and don't eat shellfish. And I mean, it's mysterious and confusing. And yet all of it is pointing towards a holy God who demanded holiness of his people. And yet it was still a mysterious thing. People were looking for some type of Messiah, but they didn't recognize it in Jesus. It was a mystery to them. And now Paul is saying, listen, this mystery has been revealed. And my mission is to make that word of God, that mystery Known to everybody. And he says that the mystery is this. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you. That's the mystery. How can we know peace with God? This is it. God has to come into us. See, that's my That's my mission. My mission and my comfort is to take this supreme God, this supreme one who is over all things and in all things and through all things. This is Jesus Christ, the supreme. And he is now, he says, this is the mystery. The supreme one is in you. And he is the hope of glory. Nothing else. That's Paul's mission, he says. But he also has a goal. You can see it in verse 28. 
He's talking about Jesus, Christ in you, the hope of glory at the end of verse 27. Verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's, that's Paul's goal. That's Paul's goal, to present everyone mature in Christ. So here's an implication. Coming to know Jesus is one of the most beautiful and transformative things. I mean, those of you who have known Jesus for a long time and maybe can think back to a particular time when you first became aware of your sin, that you first became aware of a Savior who loved you, that died for you, and you said, I put my hope in you. It would be interesting. I don't think it's necessarily the case that you have to remember an exact date, but who does? Raise your hand if you can remember the exact date that you gave your heart to Christ, that you became a Christian. Date? Or, okay, if you don't remember the date, can you remember the exact moment? Do you remember where you were and what was happening around you and who you were talking to? Yeah, lots of people do. Okay? Those of you who don't raise your hand, don't go, well, no, am I a Christian or not? I mean, maybe you're not. Um, If you've never given your heart to Christ. Uh, I don't remember the exact date. I can remember a conversation that I was having, but I don't remember even exactly whether I was five or whether I was six. I can sort of just remember where it was and roughly what time it was and where we were living. But But as great as that moment is of coming to know Christ, do you notice that Paul's goal here isn't to say, I want to get as many people to become Christians. He says, I want to present everyone mature in Christ. Because... Coming to faith is like being born, right? That's not a new thing. It shouldn't be a new thing to you. Jesus said it. You must be born again. So you're born into a new life. The old is gone, Paul says in his other letters. The new has come. I'm a new creation. And we're like babies in Christ. Dependent. Very dependent. But Paul says, I want you to grow up. I don't want you to remain a baby in Jesus for your entire life. I want you to grow up. I want you to mature. I want you to develop. I want you to use the abilities that God has given you to serve other people. I want you to be able to um, have discernment and wisdom. Now, a child needs a lot of guidance, don't they? The younger they are, in fact, sometimes as they're older, they they still need guidance. But one of the points of maturing is less and less hand of guidance on a child so that they start to learn. Hey, yeah, that's not going to be helpful if I do that. It will be beneficial if I do this. They start to have discernment between what's good and what's not. What they should do. How they should do it. Should be, I hope. Less and less involvement as a parent as they become older. That's the goal, right? Should be, I hope, of parenting. To prepare your children for adulthood. Successful adulthood in this world. Paul says, that's my goal. I want to present everyone mature in Christ. I want you to be able to walk into the presence of God one day face to face. And you've grown up. You've grown up. That's his goal. So his mission was make the word of God fully known. This mystery that was once there but is now the hope of glory, Christ in you. His goal is, I want to present you mature. But I want you to notice the last verse. Verse 
verse 29. This is how Paul gives his effort to these things, right? This is how Paul spends himself to this. And so Paul's able to say, this is, for, this is what I toil for. This is what I work for. This is what I sweat for. In fact, as we read his life, this is what he bleeds for. This is what he sacrifices for. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. There's a tension here, like like there is in lots of truths of the Bible. Paul was happy to live in the harmony between his part and God's part. And it is a harmony. There is a part to play. Paul's saying, listen, I I toil for this. I work for this. I struggle for this, for this goal of presenting you mature in Christ, for my mission, which is to make the word of Christ fully known. Even, Even his suffering is pointed towards other people. And he's saying, listen, I toil for this. I sweat for this. I work for this. I'm struggling for this. But he doesn't say I'm doing all of that with everything that I've got. He doesn't say that. He doesn't approach this which says, you know what, this is all up to me. And if I fail in this, then your maturity is at risk. Or the word of Christ going out is at risk. If, if, I, if I fail in this... He doesn't say this is all about my skills or this is not all about my anointing or my anything. He just says, I work like nothing else for this, but I work with the knowledge that all the energy that's there belongs to God. Paul was happy to live in the harmony between his part and God's part. Paul toiled and struggled. Energy, power and work. happens all the way through the bible the harmony of what we do and what god does and we're going to be okay with that paul was paul says listen i'm i'm strong i'm not going to give up on this i'm going to push towards this goal of comfort for the church of pointing people in their maturity towards jesus to make the mystery known to everyone and i'm wondering is that what we is that what we're willing to toil for both as individuals, but as a church, corporately. Is that what we're known for? Hey, this church, man, these guys toil. They struggle for this. That's their goal. They want to see the word of Christ go out. They want to see people exposed to the mystery of Jesus. They want to see God, Christ in people, the hope of glory. That's what they're toiling for. That's what they're struggling for. Is our goal to see everyone mature in Christ? So it's not all about just going out, dropping 10,000 leaflets and just thinking, well, I hope that 10 of those people might become Christians one day. We've done our part. That's not all. Let's do it. It's not sort of just going, okay, you've crossed the line. You've become a Christian. All the best then. This is about, this is about working hard to see everyone mature in Christ. This is not just the job of someone who's paid to work here. This is every single one of our job. If you know Jesus, then your great 
mission and goal in life is to see people exposed to the truth of the gospel and then see them presented mature in Christ. It's called discipleship. But man, we can run ourselves ragged, can't we? We can run ourselves into the ground with this stuff as soon as I start to think this is up to me. This is up to our programs. This is up to how well we can get ourselves to do this. And this is up to how good our strategies is. This is up to how good my energy is. And am I willing to spend... Listen, we've got to be willing to work, right? But unless we realize that we're working in whatever God supplies, whatever energy He gives to this, then we're, we're fooling ourselves. We will never be able to do that. We will never be able to present people mature in Christ and say, if it's all up to my strength and all up to my energy. It won't happen. It won't happen if it's all up to yours. It won't happen if it's just three people amongst this church doing it or ten people amongst this church. We all have to be on this together, right? This is Paul's great strategy to actually bring comfort to the Colossian church. He says, listen, I know you guys are struggling and doing it tough. I know you guys are just feeling like you're out there all alone, but I want to tell you that Christ is supreme. And that's not just some theoretical truth for you to sort of just tick off in your head. This is real, because if he is supreme, he's supreme over the goal, he's supreme over the mission, and he's supreme over all the efforts that we might even bring. Do we trust that? As we do, it brings great comfort. Brings great sense of relief that if God is at work, then all he's asking us to do is just to come alongside of him and say, listen, join me. Join me. Jesus is doing a work in Raymond Terrace. He is. And if we don't believe that, if we're just happy sort of just coming each week and singing a few songs that we like, meeting a few people that we know and going home again, And if if we really don't believe that that Jesus is at work in bringing this town to know the gospel. Man, we've got a long road. It'll be hard work. And we'll drive ourselves into the ground doing who knows what. Paul says, hey, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So yeah, there'll be suffering in this road. There will be. I can see Austin nodding his head. Austin's been here for 40 years since they first started meeting as a church here, amongst a few others. And he he knows the road, right? And, And there's been suffering and hardship. Paul says, I think Austin, I've heard you say, I know others who have said, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. As we bring comfort in that, in the goal and the mission of discipleship to bring the gospel to bear into people's lives who don't know Jesus, that they might see the great mystery, Christ in them, the hope of glory, and then working and walking and suffering and toiling with all the energy that God provides to work and walk to present them mature before Christ one day. I think we overcomplicate life. Sometimes we certainly overcomplicate church life and discipleship. It's, it's simple. It's difficult, but it's simple. Let people see Jesus. 
and then walk with them as they mature. That's it. I'll never be able to write a book and sell it very well because it'll only have like two, two lines in it. Okay? Point people to Jesus and let them see the glory of Christ and then walk with them as they mature. That's, that's our goal and that's our mission. The energy, well, that either comes from us setting us up for failure or it will come from Jesus. And he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the work of the cross. Amen. We can be confident in that. Jesus is supreme over all things. We can be confident in that. Through him, for him, and by him, everything was created. We can be confident in that. Let's pray. Lord, you've called us to a great mission. The goal of the gospel. And we hold on to you as supreme and sufficient for everything. that's, That's our message. That your sacrifice for our sin is enough. That by faith we receive the the gift of new life in Christ. And our hope rests in what you have accomplished for us. So Lord, as a church, help us to find comfort in that. Help us to first rest in that. And see that any suffering that we have in this pathway can not just be about ourselves, but also for the benefit and comfort of others. And that this great message of the gospel becomes the goal of what we're about. Lord, forgive us when we've toiled in our own energy. Forgive us when we've lost sight of the gospel. Forgive us when we've been content to just be concerned with our own comforts. Lord, refresh our hearts and refresh our vision with a renewed goal of seeing the gospel go out. Seeing people impacted by the message of grace. And then, Lord, will you help us just to simply walk beside people as they mature? Lord, give us energy, we pray. Help us to discern when we are working by our own efforts rather than relying on you. And Lord, we're prone to do this. So correct us, we pray. Encourage us and strengthen us for the task ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.